Once again, President Trump doubles down. Never mind the pipe bombs that a pro-Trump fanatic sent to top Democrats or the horrific murders by a deranged anti-Semite at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, the president decides to ignore calls to tone down his polarizing rhetoric. Instead, in the final days before the midterms, his campaign committee releases an incendiary ad showing footage of a snickering illegal immigrant talking about killing cops. The tagline, the Democrats let him into the country, the Democrats let him stay. Before that ad was even released, and then tweeted by Trump himself, a New York Times column anticipated it all. In a piece that ran on the paper's op-ed page last weekend, the column detailed the long, rich history of Republican fear-mongering, from Richard Nixon's Southern strategy to the notorious 1988 Willie Horton ad, flashing images of a convicted African-American murderer who had been pardoned by Michael Dukakis. The only difference, and it is a shocking one, is that Donald Trump cuts out the middleman, the column noted. He handles the dirty work himself and revels in it. And the only question now is, will it work? We'll discuss with the author of that New York Times column, the legendary Maureen Dowd, on this episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia say yes no is a it? ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. If we were doing this, having this conversation about a week and a half ago, I would have thought that the Democratic hopes for a giant blue tsunami had pretty much faded, that Republicans did seem to be quite on the upswing. The combination of Kavanaugh and the caravan seemed to be working for the president. And then we had the pipe bombs and then we had the Tree of Life murders and Trump with his rhetoric, not backing down one bit, even stoking it, attacking the press, doubling down on the uh, on illegal immigrants. My sense is that it has turned voters off, independent voters off. And the Republicans I've been talking to in the last few days seem a lot more nervous this week than they did last week. And you're seeing a little bit of that in the polling. Uh, some of the data suggests that uh, Democrats are beginning to pick up momentum. And I agree with you. It feels like the likelihood of a blue wave is greater now than it was a week ago. I think more so there's this kind of this shift that you're feeling based on the mood of the country, based on, you know, often what happens is late in an election, uh, there are external factors that uh, affect the race. And they're not always picked up in the polling, but you can just kind of feel it. I think that's what's going on here. I think it is the attempted pipe bombings and the Pittsburgh massacre, synagogue massacre. And the interesting thing is Donald Trump, who is a, uh, whatever else you say about him, he's a pretty instinctive politician. He feels it, and he has said so explicitly. I'm actually going to read 
a treat, a, a uh, Trump tweet. Treats in the, were last night. Yeah, on yeah that, that was yeah, about, yeah, exactly. You're, you're talking about tweets. Uh, yeah. th- this was before Pittsburgh, but after the uh, attempted pipe bombings. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump tweets: Republicans are doing so well in early voting and at the polls, and now this quote bomb stuff happens. And the momentum greatly slows. News not talking politics. He's very upset that we're not talking about politics. Uh, Very unfortunate. What's going on? Republicans go out and vote. So he saw the momentum uh, slowing for the GOP. And so what does he do? He tries to seize back the news cycle. He starts talking incessantly about the caravan, about the uh, unknown Middle Easterners, fanning the flames of these conspiracy theories that George Soros is funding it making the decision to send 15,000 troops down to the border. And the, and anything the, he can do, anything, he's going to throw anything up against the wall to see what sticks. Right. And that ad, which I talked about in the in, in the open, it's so crass. It's so over the top. You know, the second part of the ad shows the marauding caravan uh, immigrants banging on walls, everything to make them as scary and spooky as possible. And, you know, the Democrats let him into the country, uh, the Democrats. Democrats want these people in. Look, Trump is challenged in that uh, Axios interview by Jim Vandenhei, I thought quite effectively about the impact of his rhetoric, his impact of calling us in the press the enemy of the people. And it's worth listening to how Trump responds because he doesn't accept the argument at all. In fact, well, not for only him, that, it's he a calling you, card. He yeah. does what you said in the intro, which is the, yeah. he, he doubles down on yeah. it. Yeah, let's just let, let's listen to that for a moment. Don't you worry at all? I mean, people, you are like the most powerful man in the world. And if you say that word, enemy, enemy, literally tens of thousands of people go into a stadium to listen to you. And, and then people go on social media and they get themselves so jazzed up. There's got to be a party that's like, damn it, I'm scared that someone is going to take it. It's my only form of fighting back. I couldn't be here if I did that. I you won. You here. have the presidency. No, no, no. But I did this before I won. This is how I won. That's basically his view on things. Look, I mean, has there ever been a president in modern times who didn't see it as a core responsibility of the office to tamp down on the emotions, lower the temperature so that things don't spill over into violence? I mean, that that is like the core uh, responsibility of an American president, and he rejects that. Um, he does just just the opposite, which is a pretty extraordinary thing. And look, it has worked for him. At least it worked for him in 2016. I I agree with you. I have my doubts that it's going to work this time, particularly in a in a midterm election where it's he's not on the ballot, and it's a lot harder for a president to really control. Uh, the political moment. Yeah, I I just want to read one more of Trump's tweets because it's so revealing. He does go to Pittsburgh, right? Even though uh, the rabbis and the Pittsburgh public officials didn't even want him there. But he he does go and, you know, pays his respect to those who were murdered. And then he tweets. And what does he tweet about? Does he tweet about you know, bringing the community together. Does he bring up, does he tweet or talk about the need for healing in the country? No, he turns it into a campaign ad. I'm just reading from the tweet now. Yesterday in Pittsburgh, I was really impressed with Congressman Keith Rothfuss far more than any other local political figure. Uh, His sincere level of compassion, grief, and sorrow for the events that took place was in its own way very inspiring. Vote for Keith, exclamation point. 
he turns he turned the Pittsburgh. massacre of eleven elderly Jews <laughs> into a uh, political uh, opportunity. Yeah, um, it's pretty extraordinary. Well. We're really fortunate that we're going to have Maureen Dowd uh, on the podcast. She's amazing and uh, it's full of uh, her yeah. usual insult, uh, insights and the kind of intersection of <laughs> and culture. Insults. And, yeah, and well, insults. Yeah, well, they Let's go both ways. Let's not forget those. On the intersection of kind of culture and politics. Uh, but we're also really uh, fortunate that we're going to have Hillary, Hillary Rosen, um, yeah. who is a veteran uh, Democratic political strategist uh, and no one better to kind of break down the state of the election, individual races, and where things are going with these midterms than uh, than Hillary Rosen. Uh, let's get on with the show. We are joined now by my old colleague, Maureen Dowd. Maureen, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you, Mike. Uh, now, you don't do a lot of interviews, so uh, I want to say, actually, before we start, I should get some credit for this, Clyde. You're looking at me? <laughs> yes, I'm looking at you because, you know, nobody gets okay. Maureen, yeah. you know, to talk You've about You've had a lot of big anything. gets in your career, yeah. right? <laughs> right. right? You, Trump? Yeah. You yeah. interviewed Trump? Yeah. Trump. Uh, Assad. 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 And Dowd. And right. now Dowd. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Nice company you're in. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, actually, before Maureen says anything, can I just tell a little bit about well, our Well, I was going to say, you do have a little bit of an yeah. advantage over your fourth estate colleagues, given the right. history between right. you and right. Maureen. Let so, me oh, take you back to 1979. Jimmy Carter is president. Maureen is the Montgomery County correspondent for the Washington Star. Of, bless, ah, of blessed memory. Of blessed memory. I am the Prince George's County reporter for the Washington Star. There was a, always an intense competition to see who would get to cover the state legislature in Annapolis. I just want to say, I was, I was delivering the Star. Yeah, you were playing when in the that playground happened. at Georgetown <laughs> right. Day School. Okay. Anyway, Dennis Stern, the Metro editor, picked me over Maureen to cover the state legislature that year. She has actually resented me ever <laughs> since. Is this the way you guys treat your guests? <laughs> yes, but did no I tell the story? No wonder you have a hard time getting guests. <laughs> did I tell the story correctly? Uh, well, sure. Wasn't very flattering, though. <laughs> Don't well, you, you have any nice memories? <laughs> you're, you're worse than Trump. I've been sitting no. here for 15 minutes, and it's all about you yeah. and your triumphs. <laughs> all right. All right. Let's talk about you. Thank and you. Um, your actually totally prescient column last Sunday, the riling up the crazies, which I do think is really a, a pivotal moment. Uh, the, the, the developments over the last week, are, I think, are a pivotal moment in this in the midterms. Um, your line, and I just want to quote uh, one thing, a, a Democratic president coined the expression, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, but it was Republicans who flipped the sentiment and turned it into a powerful and remorseful, remorseless campaign ethos, make voters fear fear itself. Yeah, well, I've been covering Republican, you know, races for a long time, and it just always strikes me that they find uh, a boogeyman that we're supposed to be afraid of. And it started with Lee Atwater. For me, it started with uh, Lee Atwater and um, Roger Ailes when they were going to turn Willie Horton into Dukakis's running mate, as Atwater put it when he apologized for it right before his death. 
but I guess it, it really started with Richard Nixon's Southern strategy where they tried to make people scared of busing and desegregation. But as far as when I started covering things, that was the first thing. And, you know, it's interesting because it just it's always like either the other or someone with darker skin or we had the transgender bathroom thing and then Carl Rove set up that thing with gay referendums where we were supposed to be afraid of gay marriage. So it's always, you know, something coming. Al-Qaeda terrorists yeah. in 2004. Yeah, and Dick Cheney said there would be a devastating Al-Qaeda terrorist attack if, if Cheney and W weren't reelected. So, you know, it's usually people coming to take something from us or invade our house, which is America. You know, that's the metaphor. You know, it's just very predictable. But in the case of Trump, the shocking thing he does is cut out the middleman. So George H.W. Bush would get Lee Atwater to right. do it. And even Lee Atwater would distance himself and get an outside right, right. group this was to the, do. The Willie Horton the ad one, was an attack ad by a supposedly independent, I say independent with air quotes. Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, well, with George, the Bushes. Right, because yeah. George H.W. Bush was too genteel yes. and well-bred. Yes. He was going to do that himself. And that happened later with W. and McCain. And it was some outside people trying to say that McCain had fathered an illegitimate black child. Although, but but uh, Trump, it cuts out the middleman. Right. So, you know, Lee Atwater not only... H.W. distanced himself from what Lee Atwater was doing, but Lee Atwater distanced himself <laughs> from what Lee Atwater was doing. There were right. two Willie Horton ads. Yeah. There was one that the Bush campaign did with people right. with dark skin, prisoners going through a revolving door. Right. But then there was the one that used his face. And Roger Ailes and people would go, wow, we don't know who did that. <laughs> yeah. Although in your column you quote Ailes saying, the only question is whether we depict Willie Horton with a knife in his hand or without it. Well, he was, uh, I think, kidding, but they did have their own Willie Horton ad. They just didn't use his face. Uh The one that used his face was done by, quote, unquote, outsiders. Well, so speaking of uh, uh, Ailes, the the title of this column is Riling Up the Crazies. Right. What's the provenance of that? Well, there's this great uh, documentary on Roger Ailes by Alex Gibney and Alexis Bloom that is opening um, in November, I think, or early December. And it's really good. But what's sort of striking, you know, Mike and I were, you were at the convention with me, right? Mm -hmm. When Ailes went down at the very moment Trump, his Frankenstein was coming up despite, so he went down on sexual you know, harassment charges as Trump was triumphing over his groping charges, right? Had that happened? Yeah. Well, no. The, 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 Did the, that happen the later? Hollywood was October 7th, so it was a, a Okay, a but he, there months. had been things about him and women and not right. treating oh, women yeah. well and, you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was just a weird scene at the convention because the— Trump wouldn't have been able to triumph if Roger Ailes hadn't given him this regular gig on Fox News and he was a top advisor to Trump. And so at the moment of Trump's triumph, Roger Ailes, his mentor, was falling. So Ailes is Frankenstein and Trump is the monster. Well, Ailes is Dr. Frankenstein and Trump is the monster, yes. Okay. Okay, so this strategy, beginning with, as you mentioned, the Southern strategy that Nixon did and uh, all of this other stuff, the fear-mongering, 
It's worked for Republicans. Right. Uh, it works. Years, right. It's, it works. We're a few days away from the midterm elections. I'm not asking you to make you know big predictions, but do you think do you think it's worth I mean, the last week or so, which has been just crazy um, in the in the aftermath of these you know terrible attempted fight bombings and and the massacre at the synagogue in, in Pittsburgh? You know, some people think well maybe there's going to be a backlash against Trump because of it. Do you think this is working for him uh, now with all the kind of caravan stuff and sending troops down to the border and, you know, all of that crazy stuff that's going on now? Well, I think that it was working. And then because of the pipe bombs and the synagogue shooting, there was an abrupt stop in momentum. And you can feel it when it happens. It was like when Hillary stopped after Comey. You just feel it. But that's why Trump has ratcheted it up and is now doing something that I think as with Trump, a lot has never been done in history before. He's using the federal government to provide scary optics to his scary fear lies. So he's going to bring 15,000 troops. He's threatening to bring to the border, which is more than is in Afghanistan. And he's talking about this, you know, rescinding birthright uh, citizenship, which is in the Constitution. So he's using the federal government to back up his scary fear-mongering, which I don't think has been done before. Well, have you seen that latest ad, which he's now tweeting out with the uh, uh, the illegal immigrant who was the convicted murderer talking about how he wants to kill more cops? I yeah, mean, it's the exact yeah. same playbook. So you asked, And the Democrats let this guy in, and they'll right. let more like him in. Right. Well, it's... You know, you asked about the Roger Ailes thing. So Roger Ailes studied Lenny Raffenstahler, Hitler's propagandist, and he had, you know, a specific playbook that you would create this patriotic, traditional world, and then you would trash the other and the elites who were trying to help the other. And in some cases, as with Obama, even the other a black man wasn't other enough, so we had to paint him. You know, that was the whole birther thing. He yeah. had to be Kenyan and Muslim. Right. I mean, you know, piling other on top of other. So every time you write <laughs> one of these columns where you're bashing and skewering Republicans, all I'm thinking is, what does Kevin think? Well, you know, I... <laughs> Kevin, Kevin is Maureen's Republican brother, yeah. who every year she turns the column over to to Kevin for uh, to give his perspective, which is radically different than Maureen's. I mean, is he turned off by Trump's rhetoric at all? Well, you know, I, I like Times readers to see something from the belly of the uh, red state because right. some of the conservative columnists have all are all voting Democratic now. Yeah, yeah. So this is an actual Trump voter, an avid supporter. You know, I went to, I had wanted for a long time to take him to Monument Valley for his birthday. So we had a trip long planned when the Ford Kavanaugh hearing started. And Kevin was Kavanaugh's uh, high school basketball coach at Georgetown Prep. Really? And refers to him as his fourth son. And all of his sons went to Georgetown Prep. So this was very touchy. And my sister kept saying, if you write you know, the wrong column, he's going to cancel the trip, which I had already paid for. But I went ahead and wrote, you know, the Ford Kavanaugh columns I wanted to, and I didn't hear from him. So we went on the trip. But weirdly, our trip coincided. We ended up together watching Kavanaugh swearing in. 
And then Kavanaugh thanked his coaches, and Kevin began crying. <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking. So did Kevin Boy. chaperone any parties that Kavanaugh was at? Well, I said to Kevin, you know, you, you weren't really in a position to know what he was like at parties. Yeah. But Kevin has, uh, in the New York Times and in... Um, you know, on local TV, uh, has been defending Kavanaugh, even at the nadir, and his character. He is a, a character witness, as far as you can learn from what a kid is like, you know, with a coach. Well, it, it does uh, remind me we need to get Kevin as a guest on <laughs> I don't on think I can allow that, Mike. No. But anyway, I told yeah. him I was coming on with you, and yeah. he doesn't usually deign to uh, tell me what he's thinking unless it's Thanksgiving, but yeah. I, since he loves you. Yeah. So, you know, he just thinks he's on the Soros bandwagon, that there are all these liberal groups funded by Soros. and that Does he think the caravan was Funded by Soros? He didn't get into that. Okay. He thinks that Dr. Ford's legal defense yeah. was. So, yeah. you know. But he's not turned off then by any of Trump's rhetoric. And Well, okay, I'm going to have a trigger warning here yeah, okay. for your listeners because right. this is not a politically correct thing to say. But part of the reason mm -hmm. Trump triumphed with people like my family is because mm -hmm. they don't like political correctness. So I asked Kevin that. Mm -hmm. And he said that supporting Trump is like uh, dating a someone who's bipolar. You know, there are going to be these <laughs> crazy episodes, but you just wait them out because at the end of it, you're going to get important things. Like to Kevin, he says every time he hears Neil Gorsuch's name, he smiles. And he is absolutely thrilled to death with Kavanaugh. So all to him, all of Trump's craziness, you just don't approve of it. He doesn't approve of the racist, anti-Semitic stuff, but he puts it to the side because Trump is doing other things that he loves. Um, don't you think after the election, let's assume there is a, a, a blue wave or at least the Democratic takeover of the House. Um, don't you think Trump is going to become even more crazy? Uh, well, you know, one of his biographers, Michael D'Antonio, told me that um, when Trump won, that he would be distilled to his essence in the White House. And so I asked Trump that, actually, when he was still talking to me during the campaign. I said, I'm worried about the idea that you would be president because you're clearly a clinical narcissist. And he got upset at that. I guess no one had ever told him. And, and a lot of people get in the White House and have narcissistic explosions. So what would happen? That would be a very bad situation for us. And he said, no, I know how to behave. You know, you should see me with uh, Palm Beach matrons at dinner parties. I know how to behave when I want to. But then he never did have to pivot. The rest of us and the rest of the world had to pivot to him. So was there a moment where he uh, cut you off, stopped talking to you? Like, for example, when you called him a... What was it? A classic narcissist, uh, or was it clinical. a clinical narcissist, or was it cumulative? I think it wasn't anything I wrote in the Times up until the point he cut me off when my book came out. Um, you know, the year of voting dangerously. He saw me. You know, it was funny. I went on the Smirkana show on Saturday morning on CNN, and I'm thinking to myself, Why am I doing this? Who watches CNN <laughs> at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning? Then it turned out there was one person watching, and he got mad at something I said. And it was funny because I talked to Jared, and Jared said to me, you know, 
uh, my father used to really like you till you went crazy. And I said, I went crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, well, if you, you know, if you would just do a nice column and tweet something nice, I think you could talk to him again. And I was like, no, that would never work, you know. Is that their media strategy? Yes. <laughs> um, well, I, they have I've, Jared call and say, can't you just write something nice or tweet something nice? Well, no. I've seen that with other people that it's kind of, they'll say, just woo him a little, you know. So, Maureen, you wrote a brilliant column about a subject that we were all talking about all the time a couple of weeks ago until uh, Trump managed to kind of divert away from it, uh, which was the Khashoggi murder. And you explain the Saudi-U.S. relationship and you talk about how the Saudis were able to curry favor with people in Washington, spread their influence by spreading around money. And you have your own very personal story about how they did it and how persistent they are about it. So tell that story, and then I want you to talk just a little bit about the Faustian bargain uh, with the Saudis, as you put it. Well, one night, you know, well, to go back a little bit, after 9-11, when it turned out that 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudis, the Saudi foreign minister came to the New York Times editorial board, and was they were on a charm offensive, like, don't blame us, even though most of the hijackers were Saudis Uh, and and the foreign minister said does anyone you you guys should come see Saudi Arabia then we could really persuade you does anyone want to come so was that what led to the Vanity Fair piece that you did well that that came later okay all right a girl's guide to Saudi Arabia well that came no because I went for the times and did stories about the you know they have Jim Crow gender apartheid which is the only place in the world you can really see that so I did a bunch of stories for the times and then later I learned that they were going to try and open up the country to a little tourism but you know basically they're so restrictive so that was just a funny premise for a Vanity Fair piece but so I I met a lot of top Saudis in the process of traveling there several times and one was in Washington once and we were having dinner at the Bombay Club and I was interviewing him and um, he suddenly like hands me this velvet box across the table what is that? <laughs> and it turned out to be this very expensive piece of jewelry. And I just started laughing. I said, no, I can't take that. And and he was like, okay, fine. And then like 10 minutes later, I feel this knocking on my knees. And it's the box knocking. And he just assumed <laughs> if I couldn't Normally take it. Normally when a woman feels knocking on her knees, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's exactly, something else. But exactly. Okay. <laughs> so, but, the, but it was a great sort of metaphor for the Saudi-American relationship because he figured if I couldn't take it in the open, I could take it in the shadows. And that's how the Saudis influence, you know. They, they're they just, uh, everything is awash in money. Presidential libraries, the Saudis contribute to, you know, PR, think tanks, universities. So they know they're going to bribe us one way or another. And they've done a, a, a pretty good job of it. Although i got to say, your story about the velvet box does make me think of the black liqueur box that Putin sent to Trump after the uh, Miss Universe pageant. And in unlike, lieu of actually coming to the pageant, In, in lieu right? of actually yeah. coming. And unlike <clears throat> Maureen, who didn't take the velvet box, uh, Trump did take the black liqueur box. That's from, called an emolument. Well, yeah. uh, now it is. Yeah. Now well, he's unlike, yeah. unlike Mike, to me, I'm going to compliment Mike and say <laughs> that he 
when we were at the conventions, he was uh, one of the first ones onto that Russian story. Yeah, I was uh, uh, pounding the table on it to uh, everybody that would listen. Um, and your colleague, uh, Andy Rosenthal, wrote a great column at the time. Well, that's where you interviewed um, Michael Mike Flynn. Flynn, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. and asked him about the money he'd taken. But look, uh, uh, by the way, on this uh, Saudi bribery thing, so who was the uh, Saudi who offered this to you? <laughs> I think it's more of a metaphor, Mike. <laughs> wait, wait, it was a metaphorical bribe? I, I thought... You're it, such it, a past. <laughs> That's why you're such a great yeah. investigative journalist. But by the way, you know the the latest news on the Khashoggi murder uh, is pretty chilling. This is from the Turks that uh, uh, they've got evidence now that the Saudi agents strangled Khashoggi almost immediately after he entered the consulate and uh, then disposed of the body uh, with acid. So look, assuming all this is true. Um, What's going to become of the uh, the Saudi relationship? Um, what happens to MBS and uh, Jared, your friend Jared's relationship with uh, MBS, the guy who is presumably, if not the architect, knowledgeable about what was done here? Well, you know, before they went to Saudi Arabia, Jared and Ivanka, for the sword dance, you know, they right. arranged the first uh, Trump magisterial visit to and remember country. the magic the orb and the, the orb, orb yeah. yeah but before they went Jared and Ibanka, Jabanka were talking about how they were going to bring deliverables and that was the first time my chill went down my spine about the administration because you know did they know even what they were talking about they were going to bring all these weapons did they know what the weapons might be used for killing children in Yemen and mm-hmm. I'm thinking wow they're in charge of bringing military stuff to Saudi Arabia. It was crazy. So Trump, you know, has this relationship with Jared and uh, and also the ambassador from the United Arab Emirates. And it's this very tight triangle. But this prince, as part of their charm offensive, when he went across the country, he did a lot of interviews with journalists. And I asked to interview him. But as long as I had been militating for and wishing for women to get rights, like driving rights and stuff, I just always felt there was something wrong with him. Because the people he With had, MBS. Yes, yeah. the Saudi prince. Because the people... I interviewed his brother, actually, in Saudi Arabia. And the brother was the first astronaut um, from oh, really? Saudi Arabia, and he had to bring a rug uh, so that he could pray, pray in space. In right. space, and he said it was really hard to get the rug to face Mecca. <laughs> the brother seemed like a nice guy, but um, so anyway, he. Um, I think he. Oh, so I was very suspicious of him because even though he was doing these liberalizing things for women behind the scenes. You know, it was almost like that was a fig leaf because mm-hmm. he was acting differently behind the scenes. He was arresting women drivers right. and he was. Um, he, he was arresting everybody. He was, uh, yeah, he was throwing. But I had interviewed Prince Walid. He was a very well respected and beloved Saudi businessman. And he threw him in the Ritz in, in prison in the Ritz for months. And I kept asking, like the Saudi embassy people took me out and and they'd be talking about how great the prince was. And I'd say, wait a minute, why is he allowed to put all these 
prominent Saudis torture and imprison them for months. There's something really creepy about that. He's kind of like, and now he just seems like the Christian Bale character in American Psycho. <laughs> I mean, this murder is like one of, yeah. you know, the most grisly, gruesome things that we've ever seen. Yeah, it's hard for me to see how the relationship with the Saudis gets beyond this. That, that you know, once they're proven to be brutal murderers of a journalist, a journalist who was writing for the Washington Post, there are going to, there's going to be a movement for sanctions, global Magnitsky Act sanctions. Uh, there's going to be you know congressional blocking of arms to the Saudis uh, for the war in Yemen. I just don't see how things get back to normal. Well, that was the crazy thing about Trump's response, because basically he said, well, this was the worst cover up I've ever seen. You know, in essence, the subtext of that was you guys didn't give me any, you know, shred of excuse to keep supporting you. But, you know, people have said sort of Saudi Arabia is like 5000 cousins sitting on a lake of oil so they could just swap him out you know, for a different cousin. But they're all, he has this circle around him, like Otto, you know, the former ambassador. We, uh, we all know. I know. Just a, who, just a, he's just yeah. a simple Bedouin. Right, exactly, right. who yeah. are kind of now invested in this guy. But I think they were all in a state of shock afterwards because when I tried to call Otto and everyone I knew there, no one would call no one, back. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we're going to have to let you go soon so you can do actual work. <laughs> uh, but before, I want to get back to politics for a second. I want to ask you about the Democrats because you, like Yesikoff, you're an equal opportunity abuser. And one of the kind of fights that's going on within the Democratic Party is is about the temperament of whoever the next uh, presidential candidate uh, should be. And there was actually a good piece in your paper in The Times today that asked the question, is Obama's kind of idealistic side outmoded in this kind of, you know, flame-throwing moment? And I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that, because you've had Joe Biden saying that he like he wanted to take Trump uh, out behind the school and beat him up. Yeah, I think he regrets that. He apologized. Holder recently said, and it was caveated, but he said, you know, when they go blow, we we kick them or whatever. And you got people talking about Abenati, uh, you know, as a possible uh, candidate, which I think is crazy and it's not going to happen. But this idea that you need someone who's as pugilistic as Trump. What do you think? Well, that's a very tricky question because I do think that – am I allowed to use the yes. you can say language, of, yes. language yeah. of S&M? I mean, for a long time, <laughs> it seems like the Republicans have been the dominance and the Democrats have been the submissives. And you can even see before the tragic events of the week that Trump was kind of making the Democrats a little cowed. I mean, they were losing momentum even before that a little bit. So they do have to fight, but Trump is unique. So he can do things that other people can, as we saw in the Republican primary when Marco Rubio tried his tactics. So I don't think Democrats can fight Trump like that, but they need more fight than Obama used to show. Obama was too cool for school. Mm -hmm. So they need someone with fight, but who doesn't use his tactics. But, you know, that's almost beside the point. What they really need to do is decide who they are and where they want to take the country and what right, they, how right. they want to express their mission. I mean, if they can't do that, you know, you're talking about tactics, but they don't even have an identity. Like a core right? identity No, they don't. Yeah. 
Now, you just spent uh, a day with Gary Hart. Oh, yeah. A, a, a figure from the past who is the subject of a, a new movie we've talked about, The Front Runner, that's going to be hitting theaters very soon. Is he the model for what the Democrats should look for? And also just tell us about his perspective. On well, Gary Hart, things. you know, was a kind of, you know, his temperament was was such that he couldn't withstand the frenzy that came after the Miami Herald reporters were in the bushes. And he, so at that moment, he probably could have fought through it the way Clinton would do a little mm -hmm. bit later or Trump would do, because I was out with him on the second iteration of his campaign after it was revived. It was just right. me and two other reporters. <laughs> and, I interviewed a lot of people who kind of teased him. They'd yell, where's Donna, Gary? But on the other hand, they liked his ideas. But he just couldn't deal with it. Even if it happened today, right. I don't think he could get through it. He just is too, you know, they use the word scratchy in the movie, but he too righteous kind to kind righteous of... righteous and brittle. Yeah. yeah, you have to have someone like Clinton or Trump who are willing to deal with the ridicule and kind of pay for that, their sins. That right, that kind of brazenness, that shamelessness. Yes. Uh, that some Who have was that, it? Uh, yeah, somebody tweeted the other day that shamelessness is the new superpower. Right. <laughs> like it almost <laughs> like Gary Hart is the only one who either he felt ashamed or he felt disgusted and disappeared yeah. off the yeah. stage. All right. You know, so when you see him, you're kind of startled because he hasn't been. You know, why doesn't he have his own cable show? By the show? way, I think we have a, I think we have a title for our podcast, which is, is "Shamelessness is the New Superpower." Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, everybody else, all yeah. these people who got us into Iraq and Sarah Palin created the Tea Party, are being lavished in book contracts and yeah. cable shows, and poor Gary Hart. You know, can't even get his book published. All right, so well, so who fits that bill on the Democratic side? Oh, well, I think that the problem with the Democrats is the Clintons, it was just basically a Clinton right. operation, the two of them for 20 years. Then you had Obama, who really liked to be the man alone on the stage. So for all these decades, three decades, no one has been grooming any Democrats. And I think the attitude of some people in the Democratic Party is they can fight for it. You know, we're not going to groom them. They have to emerge on their own. But I just think it's silly. I think they do have some talented people, but no one has been bringing those people along or showcasing them. So, and, and again, the Democrats are just so messed up. <laughs> so they can't even take advantage of... Yeah. The worst president in American history. He might get reelected because they're such a mess. Well, we'll give us uh, plenty to talk about on uh, Skullduggery and uh, plenty of opportunities to hit you up again. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Maureen. And now for another perspective on uh, next week's midterms. We are joined by veteran Democratic strategist and uh, smart on all things, Hillary Rosen. Hillary, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you, gentlemen. Happy to be here. <laughs> so how does it look to you right now? You know, I'm as a veteran, I'm constantly nervous. I, I always have been super optimistic. I do the Nancy Pelosi. We're going to win. We're going to win. We're going to mm -hmm. win. But 
Last year, I, uh, in 2016, I said it so much that I exhausted my emotion around it, and so I'm kind of afraid to say it again. You I, definitely notice a lot of Democrats this time around having not PTSD. To, I think they believe that you know either there's going to be a wave or at least the Democrats are going to take the House back, but they don't want to jinx it because they remember what happened yeah. and they have PTSD. Well, I'll tell you, I actually did not spend the last two weeks in 2016 on the road. I spend it mostly on TV, but I've just come back from Florida. And I'll tell you, there is an enormous amount of enthusiasm in places that I wouldn't have thought. I spoke at an, at an event with hundreds of seniors, many of whom had voted for Trump, who all of whom were sick of him and unhappy. And a lot of them were Jewish. It was right after the synagogue Well, I was going to ask shooting. you, yeah, I mean, are you, have you sensed a, a significant shift uh, in the last week since first the attempted pipe bombings and then the, uh, the massacre at the synagogue in Pittsburgh? You know, you, you can't really politicize, like yeah. create a political calculus around something as horrible as that. And so I'll just say that I think that it is, it just contributes to the sense of unease around the, the public conversation that a lot of people mm. who are unhappy with Donald Trump feel. And so I think to that extent, it probably exacerbated it. But that's very different than blaming Donald Trump for a crazy man who walked into a synagogue. I'm not in that camp. Right. I, I do think that the rhetoric issue has has traction here. I think that uh, a lot of people who were supportive of Trump, who like his policies, the rhetoric does bother them. And then when they see it play out with you know something like what happened in Pittsburgh, it spooks people. And I think that's where you Democrats have the most opportunities here, and uh, particularly in some of these swing districts with independent voters. Look, I, I can just tell you, talking to some of your counterparts on the Republican side, I do sense that they are a lot more nervous now than they were a week and a half ago. Yeah, I do think, though, as, as we've tracked this election over the last six months, some of this, the result, most of the result that we're going to see on Tuesday, I think, has been baked in for a while. If red states are, are coming home Heidi Heidkamp and Joe Donnelly and Claire McCaskill and Joe Manchin, all very red states, they were always going to have trouble. You know, this isn't something that's sort of new. And those suburban districts that voted for Hillary but are represented by Republican congressmen, there's a natural shift to purple and then blue in many of those places. So I think that we can't overstate kind of the Trump fever I think he's probably trying to encourage it to be overstated because he sees it probably as more helping than hurting. But, yeah. I, but I do think that some of these is just really the politics of a di very divided country and a shifting suburban kind of uh, tolerance. The one that caught my attention this morning is a race in New Jersey. Uh, Tom Malinowski, who's a Obama administration veteran, was at the State Department. Uh, I've been with lead, Human Rights Human Watch Rights Walk, leading that. human right. rights. Uh, kind of a soft-spoken, sort of sober, intellectual Although, type. Can, can I just say something yeah. I, I just remember about that? Malinowski was a lobbyist for Human Rights Watch, and if you remember when Obama came in, they put a ban they on hiring hire, right? lobbyists. Oh, I know. So right. he couldn't get a job right. under the ethics policies of the Obama White House. But uh, that was losing Isn't that quaint time. now? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. exactly. So quaint. Exactly. But so he's running a against Leonard Lance, who's a moderate Republican, uh, not a 
a bomb thrower, not a kind of a pure sort of Trumpy. And Malinowski, at least according to the last poll, has opened up a really significant lead in that race. And that's the kind of data that has to start making Republicans worried because that is one of those moderate Republican districts um, that seems to be going purple and maybe and maybe eventually blue. And there are others like that around the country that are going to be an indicator to us on election night whether there is a wave, blue wave coming or not, right? What are some of those kinds of races? Well, and I'd, be I'd at? like to say for purposes of 2020 that that's because people are sick of Donald Trump. But I think it's also because in that New Jersey 7 district, you've got a just a big wave of, frankly, you know, Brooklyn's gotten expensive, so people are moving to yeah. New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's, yeah. there's just a bunch yeah. of that. I'll be living there soon. Yeah. <laughs> One question uh, has been Latinos, the Latino vote. You would think that given uh, Donald Trump's policies, the wall, the caravan, all of this uh, kind of fear-mongering about immigrants, that it would really uh, motivate Latinos. Do you think it's going to happen this time? Well, you would think that, but you would have thought that last time. I mean, when Donald Trump announced he was running for president, he came down that escalator and essentially attacked Mexicans. And you would have thought from day one that he wouldn't have been able to win Latino votes. He won a higher percentage of Latino votes than he did, you know, Jews or blacks or LGBT. Or I mean, he was as he was as negative against Latinos as as, as so any candidate. So ever how do you been. explain that? I think that some of it is the religious issue that there's a, a higher percentage of, of churchgoers, and socially conservative, socially people, conservative. Yeah. But I think there is a significant effort among Democrats to be more inclusive, not just in reaching out for the vote, but just in more candidates. I mean, Mm -hmm. part of this is really just you can't expect people to consistently vote for you if you are not also willing to share the seats of power. And I think as we have seen more Latino elected officials welcomed in the Democratic Party, supported in the Democratic Party, it it has helped a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I think that one of the things we're going to see in this new house is a majority women and people of color caucus if all goes as as you know people are predicting even if the democrats only take the house by 23 or 25 or 30 seats you're going to have a complete demographic shift there and i think that will also change voting going forward so looking past the election let's assume the polls are right the democrats at least get back the house and if our instincts are right maybe even do better in the senate than um, most people have been expecting until now how do the democrats handle having power back in Congress. And as you know, there's going to be enormous pent-up rage at the president from the Democratic base and a lot of people who want to move towards impeachment or really aggressive investigations that point down that road. I should add, I do think a week from now we're all going to be talking about this uh, And I think Trump is likely to fuel the flames by firing Sessions and firing Rod Rosenstein uh, shortly after the election. So what is your take on how the Democrats will handle this and what would be your advice to them? You know, in this regard, I think that Nancy Pelosi has sort of set exactly the right tone. But that's a pre-election tone. She's She's gotten a bunch of criticism for it, but I don't think that she can switch automatically and go from a 
We're going to have investigations. We're going to look at facts while we pass legislation that matters to people, while we try and fix Obamacare and prevent the Trump administration from undermining it, while we look at infrastructure and do other things. I think that they're going to be very, very careful and aggressive around actually passing some legislation that people that affects people's lives. On the broader impeachment thing, I think we are a long way to impeachment, and I think that this Jerry Nadler and Nancy Pelosi know that. Jerry Nadler would be the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee if the mm-hmm. Democrats took over, because what's likely to happen is if Rosenstein gets fired, if you know there's an attempt to, to fire Mueller, there's investigations, and this has you know, been your business for many years longer than mine, Forever. Michael, right, <laughs> that you're going to have subpoenas, and then the administration is going to refuse to comply with subpoenas, and then you're going to go to court, and then some judges are going to side with the White House, and some are going to side with you know, the Hill, and then they're going to have sort of this constant battle. I think we'll, I think we'll be in the Supreme Court on some of these subpoena issues long before we'll be in impeachment hearings. Are you saying uh, investigate but don't impeach? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I right. mean, I don't we, we don't have grounds for impeachment. Right. I think, right. you know, we have we have an election and the election will have consequences. So, and so, those consequences are more transparency in some of the things that people don't feel like have been transparent. But I can foresee the moment, though, that it does come to a head. There will be impeachment resolutions brought, even conceivably making it to the floor, and fill in the speech that Nancy Pelosi gives on the floor of the House. We should not impeach him because... Fill out that sentence. Because our facts won't be held held in the Senate. We should spend our time making sure the public understands what's at stake. And to the extent that they have facts that end up making it virtually impossible for the Senate to, you know, protect the president, similar to Nixon in 74, like that would be the way to go, right? Unless you have a number of Republicans in the Senate looking at the same set of facts the same way that Democrats do— We're not going to get impeachment. I see a different challenge, though, for Democrats because I, you know, we're going to have 20 some people starting to run for president the day, you know, next week. We need to talk about that as well. Right. So those 20 people are all going to be looking for a lane. And you can bet a bunch of those lanes are going to lead down the road to impeachment and, and, and to an impeachment speech. And so the question is, does that end up defining the party and therefore defining the Democratic House or is that an individual strategy? And I, I think the jury's out on that. I want to get to the presidential race uh, for Democrats in just a second. But just since we were talking about Pelosi, you were talking about the demographic changes in the, in the caucus. But the other thing about this class that's going to be coming in, Democrats, a lot of them said that they would not support Nancy Pelosi. And so uh, I wonder, as someone who knows Leader Pelosi and, and, and knows the Congress well, um, and the leadership politics. What do you think she's going to have to do to shore up her position in the House, assuming that they get the majority? She has a tough road, but I think a couple of things are true. One is, if the Democrats win, it will largely be because of her efforts. And it's not just money. It's really... Although she has been a spectacular fundraiser. She is a spectacular fundraiser, the best the House has ever seen. And, you know, I've been around through a lot of them, whether it was Tony Coelho or— uh, He was pretty good. He was pretty good, right? Um, But nobody has done better than Leader Pelosi. So 
But it's more than that. It's that she uniquely understands the diversity of the caucus and the inside game that members experience. So she knows more about most of these districts that are competitive than some of the people running. And that's where it's going to matter because she's going to be able to give them the comfort that she can take care of their interests. She'll understand their interests. I think probably better than anybody else who's going to run for that seat. Mm -hmm. And you can't really beat someone with nothing. There's going to be huge challenges. You were just talking about them. Who is going to keep the noisiest in line to try and convince the American people that Democrats are really on their side and as opposed to just focusing obsessively on Donald Trump? So there are very few people who can kind of herd cats the way Nancy Pelosi can herd cats. Okay, let's talk about 2020, because as you know, right after the election, the jockeying for positioning in the 2020 Democratic race. Is it bad luck to do that before Tuesday? (laughs) It's what we'll all be talking about. It used to be that you waited until the day after the midterms to start talking about it. But we try to be ahead uh, of the curve here. It's so true. I'm I'm, I'm going to be on on CNN on on election day, and I was trying to calculate how long it would take before the entire panel simply starts talking about 2020 versus the results. It won't take long. It won't take long at all. So give us your sense of the field right now and, uh, you know, how you would, um, you know, what the morning line is. Yeah, I can't handicap an individual, but as I said, I think there are a few different lanes that are useful for people to understand. You know, there's kind of the outsider lane, right? The the sort of the Mitch Landrews and John Hickenloopers and Eric Garcetti and Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, and maybe even Andrew Cuomo, or Terry McAuliffe. All those people, notice they're almost virtually all white men. Uh, uh, McAuliffe um, and Cuomo don't sound like outsiders to me. But, <laughs> but they won't be of Washington, and you can bet yeah. that they can run against Washington based on the experience they've had in their states. And then there's kind of the non-politician politician, which Mike Bloomberg still is in that category. You know, maybe Howard Schultz is in that category. You know, maybe Mark Cuban's in that category. So that sort of outsider view, I think, is one perspective. But the insider field of whether it's Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris or Joe Biden at the top of the insider list, right, I think has the highest name recognition right now, has the biggest base of support, has the you know biggest email list. They'll be ra- able to raise the most early money. And key among all of these people, I think, is understanding the midterm voter. I do not think there is a path to a Democratic nomination without aggressive support for women and African Americans. That has to be right up front. And so I'm not saying... A white candidate can't get those votes. Of course they can. But I'm just saying you need a path to get those votes. So does that come from the progressive Bernie Sanders wing or the Alexandria Acosta wing? uh, Or can that come from somebody more in the middle? I think it can come from someone in the middle as long as they put something on the table that matters to communities that have felt out of uh, you know, so that's why that the power table wasn't being shared. I keep thinking Mitch Landrieu is an interesting potential candidate. I think his platform is not great as as a mayor. He seems to be someone who can position himself as kind of a the old-fashioned, pragmatic, uh, more centrist Democrat from the South. But because of his family's history mm-hmm. on race and r- racial mm-hmm. reconciliation and their he's relationships, walked, he's walked, the walk, he's walked the walk. I think yep. he's an interesting kind of sleeper candidate. I saw him. 
speak at the what, one of those Washington uh, the gridiron, and I hmm. thought he was pretty amazing. Um, I have another question: Do you need someone? You know who can uh, I don't want to say out Trump Trump, but someone who's a little more large, larger than life, who's uh, can be pugilistic, can punch back. You know, everyone's heard about Michael Avenatti talking about running, which but that's does not that's ridiculous. That is ridiculous, but more ridiculous over the last few days. You know, granted, I agree. But but But, you're right. You're right about the personality piece because, like, let's face it, fellow Democrats. Donald Trump has been president for two years. We still haven't a clue how to challenge him. We don't have a clue how to silence him. We don't have a – like these midterms I think will be a big test as to whether his brand of politician, you know, has worn thin. But it won't be the final test. Is there anyone in the field, in the Democratic field such as we know it, who you think can figure out how to challenge Trump uh, without uh, stooping to his level? Yeah, I do believe that a, I, I call it grandstanding with substance. Right. right. That there has to be somebody unafraid to be a little shameless. <laughs> Interesting yeah. that you should say that. But because you need some substance behind it. previous guest, Maureen Dowd, made that same very point right. about shamelessness. Right. The politics the, of shamelessness. Is the new thing. Look, uh, for the record, when you said fellow Democrats, you were talking to our audience, not, not to you us guys, journalists. Not you guys, of course. Yeah. That's what I meant. Um, <laughs> no, no, but no, the last audience. question. One, one other quick piece on, yeah, the, on, the, yeah. on the primary, Democratic primary, which is California. The big unknown and the yeah. most, the least talked about in terms of impact on 2020, because California's moved their primary up to a Super Tuesday state. You know, right after Nevada and South Carolina, winning California and all of those delegates will be very significant. Last question: I want to ask you about your friend with whom you share a first name, who people are still wondering whether she, Hillary Clinton has uh, uh, ambitions for another run. Uh, she's given some hints of that. What do you think? Well, I haven't talked to her, so I'll take her to word and other friends who have talked to her that she has no intention of running. But uh, no intention I is like, a way to say, <laughs> I'm thinking about it running. and planning but, it. Yeah. But this, I like the fact that she's willing to say, I wish I was president, because that's what she has said. She said it recently yeah. in an interview with Kara Swisher, just right out there. Yeah, yeah. you know what? I'm not running for president, but I do wish I was president. God bless. So do I. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, More voters the last time around actually shared that view, but not in the Electoral College, unfortunately, uh, for uh, for you and and Hillary Clinton. But uh, Hillary Rosen, thanks uh, for joining us, and we hope you'll come back. Thank you, gentlemen. I hope we've achieved a little skullduggery. (laughs) (laughs) Much more to come, I hope. (laughs) Thank you, Hillary. Thanks to Maureen Dowd and Hillary Rosen for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time with replays at 10 p.m. and then Sundays at 2 a.m. and 1 p.m. And be sure to follow us on social media at Pod, and we'll talk to you next week.